Hey folks, welcome to a very special standalone episode of the Battles of the First World War podcast. Uh, today we have with us two very special guests, a Mr. Ross Barnwell and Mr. Andrew Robertshaw. Ross Barnwell is one of the two young entrepreneurs behind 8,000 Foot Media, a media company that specializes in factually accurate historical storytelling. 8,000 Foot Media also focuses on film and photography, creating virtual reality, audio, video gaming, Facebook Live talks and lectures, and Facebook advertising. Ross and his business partner, Daniel Gandolfi, are currently working on a short film titled Beaumont Amel, named after the infamous village on the 1916 Somme battlefield. The film will focus on the wartime cinematographer Jeffrey Malin's experiences as he took 8,000 feet of frontline footage on the Somme, the most famous of which is the explosion of the Hawthorne Ridge Mine on the morning of the 1st of July, 1916. Andrew Robertshaw is a historian, broadcaster, and educator. As a leading authority on trench warfare and medical care in the First World War, Andy has been the historical consultant for such films as Steven Spielberg's War Horse and the recent action powerhouse Wonder Woman. As the director of Battlefield Partnerships Limited, Andy also provides battlefield tours, consulting for various television programs, family record searches, and a frankly stunning idea called Trenches for Teachers, where trench systems can be brought to schools for a more realistic experience to give to students on what the Great War was really like. All of this amazing work in history comes from a gentleman who began his career as a teacher himself. So let's get to it so we can listen to these two absolutely brilliant minds talk World War I history. All right. So, gentlemen, uh, we are live. Uh, so th this is Mike from the Battles of the First World War podcast. I am here with uh, Ross Barnwell and Mr. Andy Robertshaw, who have uh, who are currently collaborating on the film uh, Beaumont Amel. Uh, and I hope I've got that pronunciation correct. Yeah. Uh, but gentlemen, welcome. Thank you. Thank you very much. You did very well. You did better than me. I, I just go for a, a British accent. I think uh, <laughs> it, it cuts through. So I, um, from my, from my listeners, I get, I get pretty good grades on, um, pronunciation of the French names, but I get, um, well, not, not raked over the coals, but everyone is very polite, but, um, I, I have trouble with English names if you can believe it. So I keep calling it Warwick. Um, I was calling it, I was calling the rank Lieutenant after the American way uh, for a yes. long time. So you'd be, you'd be surprised. Thanks to like American films and things. You'd be surprised about of English people say Lieutenant instead of Lieutenant. Yeah. So I'm, I try to make it a you know, very, very strong point. And I even like, I, I, I look up um, English place names well before any episode that requires them so that I've got the pronunciation down correctly. So you uh, Surprised to learn that I actually had a great problem. We were recording in a ball on wood a little while ago, and we found some buttons mm -hmm. that probably came from mm -hmm. what the British would call uh, um, uh, braces, uh, uh, North Americans call suspenders. Suspenders yes. are, are an item of, of lingerie. So uh, I had to describe <laughs> 
soldiers. I, I was um, teased mercilessly about these British soldiers wandering around wearing women's lingerie in a forest yeah. in the First World War. It's a big problem. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's how you got your reputation, wasn't it, Andy? Absolutely. <laughs> oh, my God, that's so awesome. <laughs> All right. Uh, so, so I guess, like, the, the first question is, how did you gentlemen um, come to work together on this project? And, and I guess maybe even before that is, what is this project? Well, Just for our listeners. You kick, you kick off with this one and I'll pick it up, okay? Well, I mean, when it, it's been six years uh, since, so since 2012 when me and Andy started working together. I was a student mm-hmm. filmmaker and I came to uh, Andy's set of trenches that he built uh, pretty much in his back garden. I mean, the newspapers went for that. Historian Bill's trench in back garden. I mean, it was just, just next to it, actually. But um, like that, obviously, I, I shot straight down there and decided to do some filming. And um, it wasn't too long before Andy started mentioning about his Ghost on the Somme book. I mean, you know, anyone who's met Andy, it doesn't take long before he starts plugging one of his books. And um, often that covered <laughs> that covered a lot about um, Malins and John McDowell as well, the other cameraman on the Battle of the Somme. Uh, mm-hmm. And as well as which, I've then been to plenty of First of July commemorations, including the hundredth anniversary. Oh, uh, and it's fantastic, and I, I really recommend it to anybody. Um, it's, it's and what Andy does is he. Um, sorry, I'm not, he's not paying me to, to advertise this, but it's, it's what sold me. To be honest, I mean, he, he runs a tour. And it's called In the Footsteps of Malins. And like that, you go through Beaumont Hamel, but also a few other places as well. And he's found with, with a other group of historians as well, these different locations where they actually filmed the battle. Some iconic imagery as well, you know, the I Hawthorne uh, mine going up and all of this. And of course, it, it doesn't take much before your imagination is captured. And well, I mean, as, as being, a, being a filmmaker for me, it's, it was, and being fascinated by the First World War, it seemed the perfect combination, the perfect story. Oh, wow. So you guys are actually working um, from like like the exact spots where Malins was filming? Oh, oh, very much so. I mean, we're exactly on the spot. Oh. In fact, one of the things that I do on the walking tour is I give people photographs um, basically, or screen grabs and get them to people who are on the tour to say, okay, look at the photograph. What do you notice? And people kind of look at the photograph, they turn it around and eventually go, hang on, I'm on the spot where he was. Uh, wow. and that is a, an immensely um, it, 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 a, a moment for people who've never even thought they could do that. Oh, wow. And the landscape, I find, hasn't changed as much as you'd think. Of course, it was quite, uh, you know, it was torn apart and, the, and the, there weren't as many trees as there are today. Um, but at the same time, there's still there's quite a lot of greenery, which is something that you don't see, especially not in films. You don't see all you see is sort of mud and you know a real Passchendaele kind of look. Whereas right. you, you look at the images running up to the first of July, and the first of July included, it's quite there's quite a lot of grass. I mean, in the sunken lane, the, the footage there, there's there's a lot of trees, there's a lot of bushes and things. I mean, it's it's not the the typical uh, no man's land and battlefield that you you expect to see, and that's what I find very interesting. Uh, I mean, the point is that the shells are outgoing. So therefore, uh, although the village itself is, is shattered and the, the, the Germans describe the, the, the ridge looking like a moonscape, a moonshine, wow. um, in, in the British lines, it's it's basically uh, crops, and uh, uh, which have gone wild, and bushes and trees. So it's very green. Yeah, I, I read that... Um that even like, you know, at kind of at, at the beginning of the battle, like the, the British could look over like the German lines and see that there were fields of like untended corn and stuff like that. Like I think even around like high wood. Um, 
it was all it, it was, crops were still growing, you know, like no, no set, no, no intention or, or no, no little care for them. But um, but they were still still growing. It was, it was after that the whole place was yeah. scoured clean. Uh, the, the point about the, the, the attack by the cavalry up the side of High Wood is, is they're able to be so effective that the Germans had put themselves very, very skillfully in shell holes. That's great, except that in the crop, um, in a shell hole, you can't see anything. Um, so they've been put in a field of fire. So it's also, and if you put that in a movie, no one would believe you. The cavalry are, are successful because the enemy can't see them unless they climb out of the shell hole, which is going to be dangerous, you know? Right, right. Right. Oh God, this is just, this is so, so amazing. I, I, I want to say, I, I don't think I've said it yet, but I want to say um, thank you uh, both of you gentlemen for taking the time out of your um, evening. And uh, Ross, I know you're, you're particularly busy at this moment. So I, I really, really appreciate um, you, you both taking the time to come on and, and um, just talk World War One here. So. Well, I, I've just come back from the, the, the location of the new trench, which is nowhere near my garden. I've been working there all day. <laughs> and, and Ross, you'd be pleased to know, we've now got 20 foot of light railway in there. Fantastic. Because this is the thing, is that because I live in France, uh, mm-hmm. I'm only a short flight away from uh from england but it does mean then um I, it, I every time i come back and see the new set of trenches there's andy's always got something new whether it's uh yeah this whether it's like railway whether it's new sort of communication trenches he's you've done no i haven't seen the new no man's land as well you built a new no man's land which is uh, uh a bizarre thing to say but very very good well, i've seen i've seen the photos yeah. yeah so cool too too cool so so Beaumont Amel is is going to be a uh, a short film and Ross I know on um 8000 foot media you talk about creating factually accurate historical films um so can you can you talk a little bit about about the project um like, like you, you go ahead <laughs> Yeah, fine. Yeah, it's 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 that that's the thing. I mean, it's it, eight thousand media is a very new creation. Um, you know, I'm working with um, my my friend uh, Daniel Gandolfi, and together it's only been the past couple of months we've really been pushing forward with this. However, it's been like I say, six years since I've been working with Andy, and Andy primarily. I mean, every now and again I work with somebody else, and slowly discovering because, of course, I went in. Um, in 2012, making uh, a film about Wilfred Owen, which I think pretty much every student, if they've ever made a First World War film, has done. And it was it was fine. And then I, I went on to write a drama, which again was okay, but it was, you're following, you're, you're, you're copying other films. You're not, you're not listening to the, the historians. You're not listening to the real stories, the, the, you know, the, the veterans, recording the veterans out there. And the, the mm-hmm. slow Got, I came to realize that I'm looking in the wrong direction. I'm watching all the previous movies. I'm, I'm watching, and, and instead what I needed to do was actually learn about the subject first, learn about the subject matter before I start trying to tell my own story. Um, I found as well, one of, one of my real sort of turning moments was when I was uh, in Andy's Trench and he had a lot of um, living historians and reenactors down for the day. And people were being shown around. But then there was this sort of lull in the day where there weren't many, many visitors. So it was just a load of guys in kits in the trench. And they were just chatting and smoking and drinking cups of tea. And it was one of the first moments that you think, oh, my goodness, this this looks so so real. Like, I, could, I can't imagine how it would not look like this. You know, it's not a it, – just for a moment, it wasn't about the, the, the shells. It wasn't about the bullets. It wasn't about the explosions. It was just about men living in a trench 
um, and getting on with day-to-day routine, which is a, a point Andy makes in, in another, again, I'm not plugging his stuff, but a point he makes in another one of his books, 24 Hours in a Trench, which is just all about the day-to-day activities. Um, oh, okay. and, and, and I found that it was almost like I was shooting a documentary. And this, this is what I found interesting. And it was only then that I realized that shooting factually accurate uh, film or documentary, or you know, film and drama is 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 not impossible. And it's with something like the First World War. There's so many interesting true stories. Why make anything up? Right, right. And and being in the trenches again, it was I've I've this is what I've read. It, it was you know hours of boredom followed by minutes of terror. Is that is that pretty accurate? Yeah, that, that, Andy has a good yeah. You spoke to a veteran, didn't you, Andy? What did he say exactly? Well, but, but the, the guy I spoke to uh, uh, said that his war was ninety percent bored stiff. Nine percent frozen stiff, one percent scared stiff, and I think what you oh see wow. on television on the big screen is the one percent. You you never are able to have time where people are bored, where people are just doing things, writing letters, you know, cleaning their kit, doing those things, because that's the majority of their time. What we all we see the Great War, a trench is somewhere that you leave to go and get killed. Whereas a trench actually is somewhere that you live, where you eat, you sleep, you drink, you go to the, the, the bathroom in that hole in the ground. And we never see that. And this is fascinating. This is what I think that like, as, as much as uh, sort of the, the, the fear and the terror and the, 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 the battles themselves are obviously incredibly, for, for better or worse, an incredibly interesting subject matter. I think the things that haven't been told so far are, as Andy said, the, 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 the more mundane day-to-day activities and they're interesting because they haven't been told they're interesting because it's all of a sudden you can start to put yourself in the place which is the whole point of 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 movies and storytelling is that you have you feel like you have to put yourself in the place of who's on screen and of course we'll never know what it was what it was like but just by seeing a guy having a cup of tea in a trench and smoking a cigarette that, that brings you a step closer to feeling uh, a connection with these guys, and and this is, and, and as well, I, I, I just find it incredibly interesting. I, I think you, you don't have that same separation, which is great. I mean, when I first started doing uh, overnights in the trench system, people who were relatively experienced and, and journalists who were doing it, I, I thought they were actually making fun of me. They started saying at night, you know, oh look at the stars. Doesn't it make you feel small? And then I realized that, of course, that, that, that people don't normally spend time outdoors looking at the sky, and, and, unless perhaps they're, they're camping or hiking. And here are these guys right. for the first time outdoors, and all they can see, particularly you know, from a trench, is the sky. And that's your point of reference. And you think, hang on, those conversations are the conversations they had. They're, they're, they're about those things, not about imminent death, not about the next battle. It's just, just how you feel in the cosmos. And what were you saying, Andy? There was that story you told me where it was some guys digging in no man's land o- overnight. There was sort of a digging party up in no man's land, and you, you spoke to them obviously um, later on. And they said about you, you wanted to know what were they talking about? What could they possibly be talking about? And it, and it took you by surprise. Well, what, what they were talking about actually it was to do with, with things like, like football and and what was happening at home. That they weren't talking about the immediacy of what they were doing. Because they were they were living the moment, and although I hadn't briefed them, that's what their point of reference was. And you know, what were they going to do? You know, when it was all over, rather than what they're doing now, which we kind of imagine is what they should be talking about. Well, there was no should. It's it's what you do. 
Yeah, the futility of war and the uh, uh, the fact that on a on a different day they could be best friends with the enemy. But it, it, like like you say, you can't go through an experience. You can't go through almost four years of war w- without just thinking about other things. It's, it couldn't be this this constant. Um, Thought pattern of of, uh, of like I said the futility of war and again that was another story that 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 was always stuck with me of Andy's that I it made me again realize that these these are just a load of guys um, spending a lot of time together uh, and they're not going to be the most poetic of guys especially a hundred years ago as well where I don't know what the rate of illiteracy was but I mean for the most part these guys on the front line there's going to be a very few who are going to be able to put pen to paper and write a letter let alone uh, a poem. So as much as that's very interesting, and in no in no way am, am I shunning the idea of, of, of looking into the side of poetry in the First World War, letters home and things like that, what I do like is the idea of just these bog-standard blokes who have gone gone over to a fight of war that they don't particularly feel much of a connection to other than it is, is what's happening. Um, mm-hmm. And, um, and I, I find that very – well, I find it very heroic, and I find it, uh, it, it again, very grounding. You can, you can see a lot of – I mean, again, I could – I'm just about literate, but I can I can see a lot more in in these guys, I think, than actually sometimes the way um, characters are portrayed on the screen. It, um, an interesting thing that I've, I've read um, on the war was like I've I'm, and I'm definitely um, uh, not not a victim, but uh, you know I've I've fallen into this thought like definitely reading Siegfried Sassoon and Wilfred Owen and and. Um, you you tend to you tend to like take on their view of the war you know as a and it is like they are correct excuse me um uh they are correct in that like it was a you know of course it it was a it was a pity and it was it was tragedy but like but i also read a different viewpoint was that another uh veteran wrote like you know you know we're not all wilfred owen like we don't all believe what he believed so Yes. Uh, what I, I would Some say is, is my grandfather, when asked why he volunteered, which he did, he said he volunteered to get the uniform off. Now, I don't actually, and I never spoke to him about this, but what I think he meant was that it, it was his responsibility, along with everybody else, to go off, defeat Imperial Germany, and return home. And then he could get the uniform off. That's very, very simple. But at the same mm-hmm. time, we've got a situation where let's take a couple of people. Let's take somebody who's a farm labourer. Um, and whether they come from, from Kansas or they come from Ontario or they come from rural Suffolk, let's take somebody who works down a, a mine, is a face worker, and somebody who's works in a steel works. The steel worker will do 12-hour days. He will have seen people die. There's no question. A hundred years ago, steel people die. Certainly, if you work down a mine, you're a face worker, you wear a respirator, a gas mask, you wear a helmet, you will have seen horrible accidents. And then let's take our, our farm labourer, 12-hour days if you're lucky, seven days a week. And in, in Britain, for most of them, they're having meat once on a Sunday. They've been soaking wet. They've been frozen. That's what you do. And then if you take those three men and you put them in a trench with somebody who's gone to a, a, a private school, then gone to university, and then been a private tutor like Wilfred Owen, and ask the four of them mm-hmm. to describe the experience, they will have very different views. But we don't hear the, the three, the guys who are very hard, very hardened, very physically fit about what they do because they just don't appear in the literature. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Have, have you guys ever come across the memoir um, "Orders Are Orders"? I forget the gentleman's name. Uh, I believe his last name is Andrew, but he's he's kind of a 
kind of a regular guy. It's a short memoir, it, and um, it's uh, interesting is that he he was there on the first day of the yes. Psalm at uh, Montauban, and um, he um, you know he he's talking about you know like going over the top and having um, it's the first time I read the phrase um have, having one in the chimney. Yeah. Um, meaning a, a round was chambered in the rifle. Uh, but he, he also talks about um, kind of like like the other stuff that you don't hear, like, um, you know, like a, uh, I think at one point a German prisoner comes out of a dugout and, and the guy next to him just shoots him down and is like, you know, that's for my brother, yeah. you know, and, and it's, it's understandable. You know, I mean, certainly it's not right, but it's, but, you know, Hey, in that moment, like, Hey, what, you know, what, I, but again, I it's, it's judgment, you know. Yeah, so. yeah. It's, it's a it's a world war at the end of the day. They're, they're, being a world war, there was no one political view or frame of mind or reason for fighting or reason for not fighting. It, it was it, this is what I find interesting. Not to go too much into politics, but when people often will put things on social media, and it's often a picture, usually of D Day veterans, but you know whatever. You just so soldiers of the Great War and saying about did did our granddads really die for this and then and then obviously put some kind of extreme statement and i think well you know unfortunately we cannot know what our granddads did or didn't do because well we can know what our granddads did or didn't do but we can't know what the guy next to us his granddad did or didn't do because we if everyone is so different in their politics and their beliefs and in, in the way they work I mean, you know he, he just in the British Army and sort of in, uh, with our Commonwealth alone, the the the, the amount of religion, the you know, different religions and things like that show, shows just a such such a, a wide variation of people and of, of 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 culture and of understanding and of why they're fighting. Everyone had different reasons for fighting. You know, the the um, lots of people in Ireland joined the British Army despite wanting independence at the same time because they thought they would have independence later on. And 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 then people in Britain were fighting for for a different cause, and then you had the Germans fighting for different causes as well. And again, it's one of those things where rather than try and necessarily get them all into one film it's just about showing that these every single guy has his own faults his own opinions his own understandings of why he's there i have to say that my my grandfather was bought the book in the 1960s the donkeys which said that generals were all stupid and he read the the book and he gave it back to my father it was my father who bought it in the book and he said no i don't agree we did our job he was a private soldier the generals did their job and my father then said, well, how do you feel on the 3rd of September 1939 when we went to war against the Nazis? He said, then my war was futile, but that's not why we fought. And I think that's the point. The, the, the benefit of hindsight is a wonderful thing, but you don't have it when you go through it. And that's the point. So that's, that's actually been, um, that's been another thing. Um, and I think if, if, um, if you listen to my Verdun episodes, I, I start off uh, – you know, kind of on that train of thought of like, you know, generals as donkeys. Uh, but then like, you know, after actually reading into it, it's like, well, you know, like what, what would you do? You know, how, how are you any better than these guys? So I wouldn't have any ideas either. Yeah. People say about the 1st of July, what a disaster. Uh, it, it was, um, but, but I have to say that compared, for example, to casualties in, in previous actions, by both the Germans and the French, actually British casualties were, wait for it, relatively light. They are shocking because we've never fielded an army of half a million before. We've never had an army of that that number. Therefore, if we lose 11% of half a million, it will be overwhelming for a British population because normally our armies, even in the Napoleonic Wars, are 
perhaps 50,000. You lose 11% of 50,000, it's far fewer people. It's it's purely mathematical. Mm-hmm. And I think that that lovely man, Stalin, said one death in a war is a tragedy for a family. A million is a mere statistic. Now, that doesn't right. right. It is just the way it is. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. certainly for the French, I mean, the French have lost half a million casualties by Christmas 1914. They've lost a million by Christmas 1915. We can't lose those numbers. We don't have them. Uh, you know, that, that's why we lose fewer people. We go to a war, we go to war with an army of about 150,000 soldiers. We have fewer soldiers than Belgium in 1914. Wow. Wow. I, I, I did but not we, realize that. We actually have fewer soldiers in Switzerland, but we'll leave that alone. That really is embarrassing. <laughs> well, I mean, it's, uh, look at the the U.S. I mean, we're I'm just now starting to uh, dig into the the U.S. involvement, which um, you know, we we started with maybe two hundred thousand on paper, you know, and uh, and then we, we quickly swelled to four million, and of which half of that made it over to France. So, well, the U.S. is another great example of just an, another completely different reason as to why they're fighting. I mean, I I, I went to an exhibition uh, in France, but about the U.S.'s involvement in the First World War, and again, mm-hmm. obviously, and it's something I'd never even considered before, but it's so obvious about why. Um, it was more difficult to, to pick a side and why it was more sensible, I suppose, in many ways to stay out of it was because obviously America is made up by so many different nationalities, including a lot of German people. So, you know, it's, again, it seems so obvious to think, of course, they've come on the side of the allies and things because of the way we look at things now. And I suppose, you know, we, we're both English speaking countries, but it, it, I can see that there's, there's real dilemmas there. And it's, uh, yeah, I, I find that fascinating that each country has its own, its own dilemmas, its own issues as, as to why they thought they thought, yeah, I've, I've actually, um, so I, I work uh, as, a, as a teacher as well, and um, uh, I've just been cleared to do an entire unit on, uh, on America and the Great War. So um, I'm not sure if my students will be totally into it, but uh, that's what we're doing for the next couple of months. Um, but uh, the amazing thing that I just, just like now discovered was, was the amount of immigrants in, in the U.S. Army at the time, like, like guys who could barely speak English are putting on the uniform like they just came over from Italy or Germany a few years back and they're now they're in you know they're in the doughboy uniform and they're right back over there so I, 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 I think I mean, just, what you get then also is is you get that that coming from populations for example in Canada uh, for example uh, 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 Berlin in Ontario becomes Kitchener um, as they go show their loyalty they just change the name of the place and again, lots of, you know, German immigrants go over with, with the, the British Army. I mean, one of the things that must have been a hell of a shock for the poor old uh, Germans on Vimy Ridge is that, that one of the guys that actually goes over the top on the 9th of April 1917 is second-generation Japanese. He actually goes over with his father's sword. And he, uh, the last thing you're going to expect coming towards you in the trench is a Japanese bloke in Canadian uniform with a sword. I mean, that 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 is quite a lot, doesn't it, about immigration and what's right? Wow, wow, that is just so cool. That's so so awesome, um, Mr. Robichaud. I've got a question for you. Um, if, if you if you could this um, so this this trench in the backyard, and and I understand that that you began a career as a teacher yourself. Yeah. Could you, could you speak a little bit about that? I, work out, I was a teacher for seven years. I taught in high schools in, in the UK. Um, then I moved to the National Army Museum, where I became head of education. 
Then I went on to run a museum for the army up until 2014. And I was given the opportunity to move the museum, but knew nothing else that during the period 1914, sorry, 2014 to 2018, other than move the museum. Mm -hmm. And at that point, I said, I need to resign because I'm not going to do the bicentenary of the Great War. And I've then been able to spend four years indulging my passion for the Great War. I'm going to living it and being out there. And I'm going to be out there on the 11th of November of this year. Um, and I'm going to be standing on the spot where my grandfather ended his war, which is what I want to do. Oh, wow. That's that's so amazing. And, and what spot is that? It's a, it's a village, actually, in Belgium. I can't even pronounce the bloody name. Um, and according to the war diary, they were having a cup of tea when the news came through that the war would end in a few minutes. So I'm going to go back with a First World War um, uh, stove and a table, and I'm going to make tea for anybody who wants to come and join me in that village, and we'll do the same as the blokes did. They weren't fighting. They weren't in action. They were having a cup of tea. So at 11 o'clock, you know, if you want to come and join me in the village, look at my website. I will be there, and you'll get a free cup of tea and a biscuit. Oh, my goodness. So uh, so all of uh, all of you Battles of the First World War podcast listeners, like you, you've um, – I, I believe – an invitation has, has been yeah. extended. So if, if only I could make it over there at the time, or unfortunately I have to, work. <laughs> I'm well, working. Well, but, I will have been working not. up to that morning because I'm actually going to be walking into Mons uh, with Canadian servicemen that morning at five 30 in the morning. And as soon as they've, they've basically dismissed because their job is done, that's the, the time they get there. I'm going to scoot down to this other location and I'm going to be doing that one. And then I'm, I'm guiding a, a, a tour party immediately afterwards. Oh my goodness, Ross! Do you have any um, any any plans for eleven November as well? Well, we were talking this today about uh, an idea. I'm, I'm not going to share it with you now because it's in the in the very very early stages. But it's um, again what we're looking to do really with eight thousand foot media is is try new uh, new techniques and new technology without it. it I, I, I'm we're trying, not we're trying to overcompensate for anything. Just trying to see what new technology brings and see if there's anything that we any any other ways of telling stories. Um, so, um, I, I, it's it's yeah, it's certainly something that we, we've been we've been considering, and we know that it's 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 a big date in our diary. Um, and uh, yes, it's just it's just a matter of um, if things go forward. But what I'll do is I'll keep you updated, and like that, you can uh, as as plans go ahead, we can let you know what that might be. Sure, sure, that sounds great. That sounds great. Um, where um, I'd like to get your um, both of your opinions on this. Um, obviously, right now, like we're at, we're kind of at the peak of of the uh, World War One centenary. Um, you know, to and it's definitely going to culminate on the eleventh of November. Um, do you foresee interest remaining afterwards? Is it is there always going to be a certain baseline, or, or are we going to dip? Or what, what do you guys uh, I, think? I look back at what happened with the American uh, Civil War, or, or depending on how you look at it, the War of Northern Aggression. Uh, I, I, you look at what <laughs> happened with the, the reenactment movement there and then Battleville visits, and you realize that it, it, it doesn't – well, it, it peaks, obviously, between uh, uh, 1961 and 65. But afterwards, it, the genie's out of the bottle. It doesn't go away. I think it will continue to be of great interest. And certainly in Britain, it remains on the curriculum in schools. You know, it will not go away. It will be perhaps less interest, but it will certainly go on. Oh, that's excellent. Ross, your thoughts? 
Yeah, well, I, I think that dates and anniversaries have their relevance. And absolutely, uh, people find it, uh, especially on the 1st of July is a, is a big example. When me and Annie are down at the Somme, we, we, we're down at the Somme on different occasions throughout the year. And without a doubt, 1st of July is the most popular. So you can definitely tell that, that certain dates, certain anniversaries have their um, uh, sort of efficacy. But I, I do think that... They, they, it's only they only add us to a small degree of of, of the interest of, of what people do um, hold in, in in subjects like the First World War. I, I don't think it w- it will go away. I mean, I, 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 it's it's all to do with um, what's being produced, what's being created at the same uh, uh, at that moment in time. Mm-hmm. I mean, in 1998, what was that? That 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 was uh, I mean, 44 no, 54 years after. Um, uh, the Normandy landings, which ha- has no real relevance to, to you know, is, is, is not an outstanding anniversary. Yet right. Steven Spielberg releases Saving Private Ryan, and and the right. uh, interest right. in that subject matter just goes up. So it, it, I, I think anniversaries are one way of, of piquing people's interest. But I, I, I tell you what, it doesn't. Not, not saying that that's therefore we're going to make a film about it. But I think I think it's just it depends on what's going on. Depends on the stories get out there. And I think the more what something I found very very interesting is that with Facebook, there's so many interesting groups with lots and lots of people and you get kind of opinions thrown all over the place and sort of maybe not necessarily the best educated uh, factual interpretations of events. But what you do get is an example of a big slice of the population who are interested and are interested in sharing stories. And because it's such a new piece of technology, this idea of it's not just now consuming information, you know, from people like Mr. Andy Robertshaw, who does documentaries, very, very good ones and books, bloody good ones as well. But, you know, it's now this, this interaction between the two. And he's not now just writing books or making documentaries for people, but rather, and, and the same with 8,000 Media, we'll, we'll make these documentaries, we'll make these dramas, and then people get in touch and let us know. And they not only get in touch and let us know, but we've also had people giving us tips, giving us ideas, telling us where we can go. And I, I think the, the more people cotton on to the idea that we can all sort of create these different things. I think the, the, the more the interest will, will, will go. I don't think uh, the end the 11th of the November will have, we'll see an end to it. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm certainly glad to hear it. So um, I, I, the, the more I, I, I get into it personally, like the, the more, the more and more, like I, you know, I want to go deeper and deeper down, down the rabbit hole, I guess. Like there's just incredibly so much more to find out, um, including, uh, stories like uh, Mr. Robert Shaw on the uh, video on the 8,000 foot media website. Um, there's a, there's about an eight yeah. minute video where you are traveling with some gentlemen um, looking at the area of the German Berg, yes. Bergwerk. Yeah, yeah, Did I get that one? Okay. And, and then um, while you guys are, are in that patch of woods, you're, you're pointing to what looks to be like a farm and there's a story there of of a young British lieutenant and a German colonel. Would you mind recounting that story okay, for uh, okay. us? We can be specific here. The, the, the division in question is, is the division that takes Beaumont Hamel um, because Beaumont Hamel, the story that, 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 that we're telling is of the 1st of July. It's actually captured on the 13th of November and that battle is the complete success. Uh, but it's taken by the 51st Highland mm-hmm. Division. Therefore, he's, 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 he's Scottish. And this young lieutenant is sent forward to capture a headquarters position underground. And they get through and they find it, no problems at all. And they challenge the sentry to surrender. And he surrenders. The commanding officer, as you say, a colonel, comes out and says, well, young man, you've done very well. Speaks very good English. Um, I'm your prisoner. 
Um, however, I am aware that you've got a platoon. It's about 40 men. I actually have over 100. Mm-hmm. And if shooting breaks out, you're not going to do very well. And the young lieutenant looks around and realizes that in the fog, it's very foggy. He's completely on his own. And actually, the best thing he can do is to save the loss of life for no reason is to surrender. So he surrenders the German colonel and his men are taken to one side and he's taken underground into this dugout. And while he's down there, the colonel says, well, while you're here, have a drink and look through my periscope. And that's how they've been watching. And he puts the periscope up and he sees Mm -hmm. coming towards him through the fog, many more Highland soldiers. And he says, Colonel, I think you should look. And the colonel looks and he sees these soldiers come in. He goes, well, I think it's no other change. Take my pistol. I'm surrendering to you now. Let's all go outside. And they do. And the poor lieutenant, in a, in a, a letter that was written to Edmonds, who wrote the official history of the British Army, actually went up and he greeted what turned out to be the padre, a chaplain. And he says to him something like, hey, I've got all these prisoners. And all this chaplain does, and there's a photograph of this guy, is he just hits him on the jaw and knocks him on the floor and takes his prisoners and disappears into the fog, leaving this guy looking very bloodied and very bruised. And the the guy that writes the letter is the person that sees this young officer arrive looking very crestfallen and very bruised. And he says, well, he was covered in mud and he was wearing a private soldier's uniform. It's a natural mistake to make to assume that this guy is just being a little irritating. And I'd like to believe that the chaplain got a medal for it because the, the young lieutenant was put up for a medal, but with no prisoners, he was turned down, poor soul. And that's where I lost the next three minutes and 43 seconds of our conversation, folks. I am crushed by it, but I've been unable to recover those lost minutes. (sighs) In closing, though, what a conversation. It was such a pleasure to just listen to both Ross and Mr. Robert Shaw speak, Um, and you can follow them. Uh, via the following links, um, 8000footmedia.com. That's 8000ftmedia.com. And battlefieldpartnerships.com. Links to both of these websites will be posted on the Facebook page and the BFWWP website. Um, All right, folks. Uh, I am so sorry for the technical cluster fudge that uh, happened. Uh, Murphy's Law. Okay, so I am off to go read some stuff now. Um, So we will talk to you again soon, and take care.